The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome back Dr. Charles Benbrook. Dr. Benbrook holds a Ph.D. in Agricultural Economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an undergraduate degree from Harvard University. He worked extensively in Washington, D.C. on agricultural policy, science, and regulatory issues from 1979 through 1997. He worked as the agricultural staff expert on the Council for Environmental Quality. He was the executive director of the Subcommittee on Department Operations, Research, and Foreign Agriculture for the U.S. House of Representatives, and he served as the executive director Board on Agriculture, National Academy of Sciences. He is a former research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University, where he led a program entitled Measure to Manage, Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. He is presently an independent researcher and consultant, a member of the USDA's AC21 Agricultural Biotechnology Advisory Committee, and he has served as an expert witness in cases involving herbicide drift and damage and the labeling of food products containing genetically engineered ingredients. Welcome back, Dr. Benbrook. Well, thank you, Melinda. I should let our listeners know if they did not tune in last week that we had a healthy discussion on genetic engineering and some of the issues regarding the safety of genetically engineered crops, what they are, the steady increase in the use of herbicides and new herbicides because of the increase in herbicide-resistant weeds. So we'll have to ask our listeners to go back and review that interview, but let's springboard from there. I'm very interested to know, in one piece of your bio with regard to your membership of the USDA's AC21 Agricultural Biotechnology Advisory Committee, tell me about your work there. Well, I'm one of, uh, oh, there's 25 or so members of this official USDA advisory committee that was appointed by Secretary Vilsack in, in order to help him deal with and work through some of the challenges in, inherent in dealing with agricultural biotechnology. I mean, obviously, the impacts and regulation and costs and benefits of genetically engineered crops have, have been and remain one of the more contentious issues on the plate of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Secretary Vilsack. And in fact, it's one of the major issues before the U.S. Congress this very week as efforts are, are made to pass federal legislation uh, preempting the right of states to label food that contains uh, genetically engineered crops or ingredients. So it's a, the AC21 committee could address a wide range of issues, although the Secretary of Agriculture has chosen to only ask for guidance and, and help from the committee on how to promote coexistence between farmers raising genetically engineered crops and other conventional farmers that are not raising genetically engineered crops 
as well as between GE crop farmers and organic farmers. There have been a number of episodes of contamination or gene flow from a genetically engineered crop field into another nearby field not planted to a GE crop. The most economically significant episodes have involved uh, BT corn traits that have been picked up in corn exported to China or the EU and where millions and millions of dollars of export shipments have been turned around. So these are examples of conventional farmers not choosing to grow GE crops but shipping to markets that are sensitive and test for GE content of them suffering financial harm from having you know ships full of grain turned around and sent back to the United States. And there's also been many episodes where organic farmers have had to adopt additional practices and additional testing to try to assure consumers of organic food who expect there to be no GE content in organic food to confirm that that's in, in fact is the case. So the AC21 committee looked at and addressed both of these categories of so-called coexistence issues. Do you think that the committee has equal representation of interest? So would there be as many members on the committee that are in favor of genetic engineering and the continued use of herbicides and believe that we can have coexistence? Are there an equal number of that representation along with, say, the organic farmer representation who understands the risk of both genetic and pesticide drift? I think all the important stakeholder groups were well represented on the committee. The individuals asked to serve have deep technical and practical knowledge about the issues, are known to be folks that can work in a multi-stakeholder environment to to try to find consensus. So, yes, I, I think the department did a good job in making sure that there were people around the table that really understand the issues and and how different people feel. Well, I give kudos to the department for balancing the committee in that way. It, it certainly also made it much more difficult for us to resolve any of the really important underlying issues. Mm-hmm. I'm very leery about the idea of coexistence, just knowing how wind currents work and the water cycle, I don't think that we can separate. I think that contamination is going to be a matter of fact. And I'm concerned about losses, not only, you know, within our individual communities and our attempts to feed ourselves, but also in, as you mentioned, the trade barriers where farmers can't keep up with the organic demand as it is. And trying to find sources for organic food, being less able to rely on American farmers and more heavily dependent on foreign importers because they want that pure organic food? Well, your concerns are well-grounded, but it was very clear to the AC21 committee that by far the most common and most costly episodes of contamination that impacted trade flows and, and, you know, cost the U.S. grain industry and food industry a a lot of money was occurring from 
contamination of non-GE crops, including identity-preserved non-GMO corn, soybeans, in particular alfalfa in, in recent years, that conventional farmers were growing. The number of incidents and, and their scope have been far, far greater than the impacts on, on organic farmers. It's true that organic grain farmers, in particular corn and soybean farmers, have really incurred some substantial new costs and and difficulties in keeping gene flow below the typical standards in international markets. Uh, uh, Japanese importers will not accept grain with more than 5% GE content. Most of the rest of the world use a nine-tenths of 1% standard. That standard is actually fairly easy to meet in the case of soybeans because of the way soybeans plants reproduce. There isn't a lot of pollen-driven gene flow far away from the soybean field. Whereas in the case of corn, corn pollen can move a, a long way and you can have contamination levels in non-GE corn or organic corn uh, well above nine-tenths of one percent unless really quite significant separation uh, distances are imposed or, or barriers or other practices. And, and unfortunately, the need to adopt those and pay for them has fallen essentially exclusively on organic farmers. So organic farmers have been forced to bear the cost of a problem that they didn't create. And, and this is one of the uh, practical realities that have led to a lot of friction uh, between the organic and conventional GE farming communities. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole consumer contingent that doesn't want to be exposed for whatever reason, and there are multiple reasons for that, but I think we all have skin in this game, and it's so important that we pay attention to this. And at the end of our conversation last week, we were talking about the benefits of organic food with regard to limits on what can be used in terms of herbicides. And if we want the most, I guess you could say, the cleanest or the purest food, that I think you mentioned that organic was really a premium brand in that if we're wanting to avoid those contaminants, that's the best route to go. Talk about why you've been writing and speaking and researching about organic food. What is it about organic food that you find to be most important? Well, I think the most clearly proven and and substantial consumer health benefit from organic production systems and routinely choosing and buying organic food, and in particular fruits and vegetables, arise from minimizing exposure and risk to pesticides. Organic farmers cannot use the vast majority of synthetic chemical pesticides that are approved for use on conventional farms. They can use a small number of biological products that are, in effect, derived from nature. These include, for example, the bioinsecticide spinosad, which is derived from soil microorganisms. It's a very effective and important insecticide for organic farmers. Conventional farmers, on the other hand, choose from over 150 conventional insecticides that pose, in some cases, rather significant risks, especially when sprayed 
later in the production season to insecticides that rarely are detected as residues in food and pose little or no risk. But there's been a number of studies and there's ample pesticide residue data comparing the residue profiles in, say, organic apples uh, harvested in Washington State to conventional apples harvested in Washington State that show uh, a 95-plus, 98% reduction in risk from the residues present on organic fruits and vegetables in contrast to conventional fruits and vegetables. This is a consistent finding reported by residue testing programs in the U.S., in Canada, throughout the EU, and really around the world wherever this sort of testing is carried out. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Chuck Embrook. He is an agricultural economist. He is extensively published on issues regarding genetically engineered crops, organic food systems, and public health. Well, Dr. Bembrick, let's talk about the herbicide and pesticide residues on conventional versus organic foods. One of the things I hear from the pesticide industry is that we're talking about very, very low levels and that we shouldn't worry about them. And it's my understanding that part per billion levels of pesticides are indeed biologically active. So how do you respond to individuals who say, you know, don't worry about the residues. We've got to have pesticides to feed the world. Are they harmful? Well, first of all, the largest class of pesticides by volume applied around the world are herbicides. Right. The vast majority of herbicide applications do not result in any residues in food because they're applied early in the production season and in many cases even before a crop is germinated. By the time the the wheat or the corn or the soybeans or the potatoes are harvested, there's no detectable residues of the herbicides in the crops. Human exposure to herbicides is for the most part through drinking water Mm. and occurs in areas where there is intensive crop production and hence a, a lot of herbicide use. The biggest concern from pesticide residues in food arise from insecticides. Insecticides often have to be sprayed on fruits and vegetables fairly late in the production season to prevent damage on uh, fruit or vegetables from sucking and chewing insects that fly around into farm fields and orchards and vineyards right up to the point when crops are harvested. It is true that good progress has been made in the United States in the last 20 years in reducing the use of many high-risk pesticides. Congress and signed into law by President Clinton in 1996 triggered several actions by the EPA to either eliminate or reduce the use of high-risk organophosphate and carbamate insecticides. Most of those high-risk uses are out of the U.S. food supply, but unfortunately are still used by some farmers abroad and result in some relatively risky residues on imported fruits and vegetables in the U.S. market. But what is equally well accepted by most scientists is that even very low-dose exposures to a variety of chemicals, including several commonly used pesticides, 
at critical windows of fetal development during pregnancy and in the first few years of an infant's life can trigger epigenetic changes and developmental changes in the developing child that have important long-run consequences on health outcomes. And it's really the need to drive down and eliminate these developmental risks from pesticides and foods eaten by infants and children and pregnant women where the focus is now in terms of pesticide risks for humans. And as a practical matter, we really have to overprotect most uh, healthy adults in order to assure that pregnant women and infants and children do not ingest doses of certain pesticides that disrupt their normal development. Absolutely, and I probably should let our listeners know about an excellent report. The Pesticide Action Network of North America did a report, and they're just getting ready to update it. It's called The Generation in Jeopardy. It's about how pesticides are undermining our children's health and intelligence at these low levels. Of course, farm children and farm workers are at greater risk, and I believe that the report that's going to be updated is going to focus on farm children as well. So I don't know about you, but I look at my food purchases as being important not only to me personally, but more importantly to the broader population around us. So what we do in the grocery store is not just about us. It's also protecting farm worker children and future generations. So just wanted to share my my philosophy on that for a moment. But uh, Dr. Benbrook, you have done a lot of research, and two new papers just came out about whether or not organic food is more nutritious, right? We get this question all the time. So I like to broaden my understanding of the definition of nutritious, and I want to say that even if a food is highly nutritious, if you've got toxins on it, it kind of destroys whatever benefits you might get or negates some of them. But you have consistently reported benefits in meat products, in dairy products, and in fruits and vegetables. And I wonder if we could just highlight some of those differences for our listeners so that they know that it really is worth our while to spend a little more. We'll get more bang for our buck when we purchase the organic foods. Sure. I was honored to be invited to join a team of researchers, uh, most of whom are based at the University of Newcastle in, in the U.K., that received funding from the um, EU uh, Science and Research Commission to conduct uh, state-of-the-art uh, meta-analyses on the nutritional differences between organic and conventional foods. So this team of researchers carried out three separate projects and has published three papers now in the British Journal of Nutrition. This particular journal is one of the oldest and most highly respected nutritional journals in the world. It has a very rigorous and thorough peer review process that really assures that the papers published uh, in the British Journal of Nutrition are, are not flawed in any way statistically or, or in details of the experimental design. And I can assure your listeners the, the review process was indeed rigorous and, and helped improve uh, the papers in, in several ways. In July of 2014, our paper on nutritional differences in plant-based foods came out. So this focused on fruits and vegetables and, and grains. 
And on February 16th, we had two additional papers come out. One focused on the differences in organic meat compared to conventional meat, and the third, organic milk and dairy products. We did, in fact, detect from the the global literature out there now some significant nutritional differences between uh, organic food and conventional food. Most of the differences were favored or were advantages for organic food. And in a couple of cases, conventional food came out with higher levels of of certain nutrients, for example, protein. But overall, our team concluded that in the case of all three food groups, there are, in fact, some quite significant nutritional benefits from the purchase and and consumption of organic food. On the plant-based side, the the biggest difference uh, arises from uh, higher levels of a range of plant secondary metabolites, which are compounds that account for the antioxidant activity of plant-based foods. All of us need to ingest a certain amount of antioxidants through our diet every day to protect ourselves against oxidative damage that would occur normally in in the absence of antioxidants circulating in our blood and and neutralizing these uh, positively charged uh, molecules that can destroy cell walls and and trigger genetic changes that, for example, can start the progression of cells towards cancer. So we found about a 20% increase on average in total antioxidant activity in organic fruits and vegetables compared to conventional ones. So a consumer can think of it this way. The federal government recommends that everyone ingest at least five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Well, if someone were to choose five servings of of organic fruits and vegetables, they would be increasing their daily antioxidant intake by roughly the equivalent of a whole other serving of a fruit or vegetable. So in effect, they're getting more antioxidants per dollar spent and also per calorie, per perchloric uh, chunk of their diet that they're allotting to, to fruits and vegetables. And and we, we think that's a, a significant benefit, which over the long run and across the American population would, in fact, deliver some significant health benefits. So the, the two big human health benefits for organic plant-based foods are the significant reduction in, and, in most cases, elimination of pesticide residues and risk, and this uh, approximate 20% boost in total antioxidant activity. In terms of the animal products, both meat and milk, it's very interesting that uh, essentially the same benefit occurs from organic production systems and it occurs for the same reason. So first, the benefit is a substantial shift in the mix of fatty acids in meat, eggs, milk, cheese, and other livestock products. It's even the same with farmed fish. And basically, there's higher levels of desirable and heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids, which essentially all Americans don't get enough. And at the same time, the feeds given to animals on conventional farms increase the omega-6 levels, which we all get too much of, and which include some 
fatty acids that promote inflammation and heart disease. So this is why scientists have focused over the last few decades on the the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids in particular foods and in the overall diet. And in general, the health community recommends that the average American reduce their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio from 10 to 1 or 15 to 1, which would be common for most Americans, down to, oh, 4 to 1 or even as low as 2 to 1, which is the, the level that is considered most conducive with long-term cardiovascular disease prevention and heart health. So it turns out that animals on organic farms are fed a much higher portion of forage and legume-based feeds. And for this reason, they have a much lower ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. In the case of milk in the U.S., the best studies published show a drop from about 6 to 1, omega-6 to omega-3 in conventional milk, to about 2.3 to 1 in organic milk. And that is a, that is a large drop, and it does, in fact, have uh, significant long-term nutritional benefits, uh, particularly among people who uh, consistently seek out milk and dairy and meat products from animals that have been fed more forages in their diet and less corn and soybeans. Yeah, I think that the evidence, thanks in part to your efforts here in this country, the evidence is overwhelmingly in support of nutritional benefits of organic food. And I know that there are naysayers out there, but I think that the accumulating evidence of which you have been such a wonderful contributor really is swaying the headlines more, and I see more favorable reporting about these studies rather than the skepticism about how could this really make a difference. Oh, that's true. And, you know, this is an excellent example of benefits that arise when science marches on. I mean, the number of studies that our team had to assess in conducting these meta-analyses was double or triple the number that were available to earlier studies done by a a team based at Stanford University and and an earlier study done by scientists in Great Britain. And even since our meta-analyses have come out, there have been dozens of new studies published that, again, are showing these consistent and significant differences in the nutrient profile between conventional organic foods. So I think the debate is now moving on to what are, in fact, the human health or biological consequences or significance of of these differences. And I'm really excited about pursuing that uh, this next batch of work to to try to answer the question on everybody's minds. Uh, You know, if I consistently consume organic food, what sort of health benefits can I expect or hope to to have as a result? That's a a critical and and very complex question that still needs further study. Well, I want to thank you for investigating this. Our time has elapsed. 
And we'll have to have you come back again when we have more data to share with our listeners. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And especially I want to thank my guest again, Dr. Charles Benbrook, Ph.D. in Agricultural Economics, longtime researcher looking at how our farming systems affect our food quality and public health. Thank you again, Dr. Benbrook, for joining me. My pleasure.